Hi, everyone. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Invest Ottawa. I teamed up with their team to produce this special series in celebration of leading women and their journeys. Invest Ottawa supports business owners and entrepreneurs through services and programs and recently opened applications for SheBoot, a six-week boot camp to ensure that your business is investment ready. If you're interested, you can visit investottawa.ca forward slash SheBoot to learn more. Growth, speed, and improvement happens through recovery. So you practice hard, you practice fast, but that's not the only thing that makes you faster or stronger. It's the recovery that makes that happen. So it's the stress. Let's let's just think about that in the context of leadership because there is a lot of stress and it can be 110% stress It can be very, very stressful. I think most leaders that you would speak to would say the one area that they value is when they do have time to think and that they have time to reflect and they have time to plan ahead. And those moments, you have to make time for them. It's it's like everything else that you book in in your calendar. You are listening to the Power of Why podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Haile, and on the show today, I sit down with Joanne Bezaboots. We talked about mental health challenges, both local and global, and what she is both doing and seeing as president and CEO of the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Center. We also spoke about mentorship and developing as a human and releasing expectation that your life should be or look a certain way by a certain age. Joanne shared quite eloquently the power of having a vision for yourself and the importance of rest and recovery for bringing that vision to life. Joanne is also a triathlete, so as you can probably imagine, there were a healthy amount of sports references during our conversation. All right, folks, enjoy this week's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Power of Why. Today, I am sitting down with the incredible Joanne Bezabutz. Joanne, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Naomi. Thanks for being here. Uh, For the audience, I wanted to give you a little bit of context on Joanne and her story. Uh, Joanne is a proactive and thoughtful healthcare leader who is known for driving changes within her industry and developing strategic plans. She has a wealth of knowledge and evidence-based practices in the areas of mental health and addiction treatment. Uh, Joanne draws on over 20 years of leadership experience in healthcare organizations across Canada, and Joanne is currently the president and CEO of the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Center and has been for the past three years or so. You're coming up on your three-year anniversary. Um, The Royal is one of Canada's foremost mental health care and academic health science centers with a mandate to get more people living with mental illness into recovery faster. And in 2013, 
um, Joanne joined the Royal as Vice President of Patient Care Services, where she was responsible for overseeing the delivery of patient care across all SSROs, including ensuring quality of care and patient services. And in 2018, the Royal Ottawa Health Services Board of Directors appointed Joanne into her current position as President and CEO. She is passionate about working closely with community stakeholders, clients, as well as their family and friends, as well as staff at the Royal. And if you'd like to learn more about Joanne, I will have more links in the show notes for you. And Joanne finally holds a doctorate and MBA and as well as a certified health leader certification from the Canadian College of Health Leaders. So Joanne, thank you. I am honored to be speaking with you today. Thanks for uh, being on the show on The Power of Why. I'm so pleased to be here. So Joanne, would you like to start us off with a little bit about your origin story and where you grew up? Sure. I'm actually from Northern Ontario, a community many people will be familiar with, Timmins. And uh, so I lived in Timmins for the majority of my young adult life as well, and eventually did branch out and uh, took a job in the Arctic. I was well along the beginnings of my career and uh, had experiences living with the Inuit in the Arctic and then with the Cree of Northern Quebec and then in Northern British Columbia, eventually in Vancouver till I was finally brought to Ottawa to work specifically with clients and family members with mental health and substance use issues. And uh, found that it was a great opportunity to delve into something that I was quite passionate about and that I'd had bits and pieces of exposure to throughout my career, but never really dove deep. So I really took this as an opportunity to dive in deep into something that I was very passionate about. Wow. It's honestly, upon listening to many folks and their stories, it's pretty incredible to hear that no one's journey and path is a straight line. You know, I knew 20 years ago that I would be doing this thing, um, but to see the way that you've navigated your career. Uh, can you talk a little bit about where your passion for this space originated? Um, was it something that you commonly spoke about with your friends and families? And, and what was your entryway into, into this industry? I'm curious. So the entry into this industry was at a time when the industry or the sector uh, concerning substance use was still very, very new. There were college courses being offered in Northern Ontario uh, related to addictions. And uh, I was just starting my career at that time. And I decided that would be an area of interest. Even back then, I, you know, I had friends and family members who struggled with issues related to substance use. Mm -hmm. And it really great fit. Small classes uh, at that time, a lot of interest, but it was just a growing field. So it really was an opportunity to get into uh, a sector on the ground floor, very much related to health and well-being. So that really appealed to me as well. But there was a real um, draw to me because of the human connection that you made at a time when people shared their stories and experiences with you. So that's what really appealed to me about working in that field. 
I eventually became a detox director of the detox where I did my student placement. And I had a wonderful, wonderful career there and was surrounded by wonderful staff. I learned quite a bit. And I would say that that was probably, you know, the first door that opened for me in terms of my career and interest in mental health, substance use, and health in in general. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, it seems like, and I don't have too much information or knowledge, I should say, in this space, but it's something that I think is obviously being talked about more and more today. For you, do you believe that today, like in 2021, that mental health like discussions are accepted by employers and, and by, by society as a whole? And what are some of the barriers that you see at the moment? Have they evolved over time? What's the, what's the pulse? Well, I would say that the pulse is changing and it certainly is evolving. And some of that changing pulse, I would attribute to our current situation with the pandemic. Organizations like the Royal and other organizations in the community that are devoted to helping people with mental health and substance use disorders, we're quite committed to the destigmatization because we know there is help and where there is help, there is hope. And that Mm -hmm. is very important for people to know that there always is hope. And uh, so the Royal has uh, worked very hard at ensuring that Uh, People are comfortable to come forward and they can come forward anonymously and with uh, confidentiality respected, but that there are services available and that they don't have to be suffering in silence or wondering where to go. So we've really been on a campaign in the past few years to improve access and to make it as easy as possible for people who are struggling to find one way to get in the door and to have a range of options available to them. And in the last two months, we've been able to launch a coordinated access point for our region, which is a pilot for the province, so that Mm -hmm. uh, clients can self-refer, family members can go to that portal and also find resources for themselves or other services or groups that they can connect with. And uh, GPs can also refer patients of theirs that they want to get into the mental health and addiction system. And it doesn't mean necessarily that everyone will be destined to receive care at the Royal, but we will find the best place that matches the needs the best. So I I think all these measures of creating better access, of using technology, of meeting people where they are, moving services out of hospitals and into community, I think that's really helped to give an understanding to the public that mental health and substance use disorders can be treated and cared for much in the same way as other chronic conditions or other acute conditions. And and I think that's helping with the destigmatization. Now, getting back to what I mentioned about the pandemic and it being an accelerator, if you will, to raising the profile of mental health and substance use, I would say that we know from research that we've conducted with our research institute that if you had a mental health or substance use disorder prior to the pandemic, it's worse now. 
oh, that if you didn't have a substance use disorder or a mental health condition prior to the pandemic, many people have now. So there's been an exponential growth of demand and need that's been expressed. But I, I certainly think the conversation has started. And uh, there are a number of community events now that have been advertised through social media. You know, mm-hmm. the world has changed so much and, and opened up, uh, you know, barriers that used to exist. And events like the Run for Women, for example, sponsored by Shoppers Drug Mart, and, and partnered with the Royal, you know, these events really bring families and people and communities together to know that, you know, you're not alone in your quest to find what the best solution is for you. And that uh, there can actually be a community coming together to help. So I, I think destigmatization is on its way, but I still think we've got a long way to go. Yeah. And your comment specifically about bringing some of these services into the community and outside of the hospital, I think were your, your words. I'm curious what your definition of community is and if it also includes, like I've been grappling with what is the role of workplaces and what is the role of other organizations that service a lot of different people and at different times also of their lives and what is the level of personal, I don't want to use the word accountability because it's kind of strong, but personal ways to find all of these services. And then what can, you know, employers and workplaces do to support their employees during this time, um, you know, that we've been in for the past 12 months, 13 months? I I think there's a basic awareness that we'd like employers to have of what the signs and symptoms are that employees might need extra help, checking in with them. And I, I think as, a, as an employer myself, mm-hmm. um, this is top of mind at this time. Number one, because visibility with employees may not be what it used to be. For those of us who have employees who are able to work from home, we're encouraging that and asking them to work from home because it's safer. And so it's changing the relationship. And for those that you can see, you know, as an employer or if you have managers or colleagues who are also in the same workplace, having some awareness that there is a change, checking in with each other, having resources available. You use the word accountability. And, you know, I'm, I'm a person who really believes that an employer-employee relationship is a two-way street and that the employer is accountable to ensure a safe working environment and and that uh, employees have all the tools that they need and that they also know that there is help available should they require it and making that available confidentially. As an employee, I would expect that my employees would have the accountability to themselves to to say, I need some help with this. I know where to go for resources, or if I don't know that I know who to ask so that I can have access to those resources. Mm-hmm. That makes it sound really simplistic. And in the daily flow, we all know that, you know, that's not necessarily how clean and uh, cut and dried, you know, workplaces are. But knowing and having that basic awareness, we wouldn't expect employers to be trained therapists, but we would expect employers 
to have material and have resources and know where to point employees for that expert help. You know, it's, uh, let's, let's talk about someone who may have diabetes. If I had an employee who had diabetes, I, I wouldn't be able to recommend or treat the diabetes. But if I had an employee who said to me, I think I have diabetes, I would make it my business to find out, you know, where can this employee go for management of diabetes? Is it a GP? Is it so severe at this moment that you, you need an emergency visit? Should we be calling the paramedics? You know, so I, I, I think there are varying degrees of, of awareness and knowledge that we can have about con- conditions that are quite commonplace. And I would put mental health and substance use disorders in that a chronic condition that can happen to anyone at any time. And um, somebody could be, you know, coming to you for help and it's, it's not planned. I mean, it just may be, you know, a relationship that you have with someone that's pretty solid and they say to you, you know what, I think I need help. Hey there. Thanks for tuning into this episode. If you are enjoying the conversation, make sure to share it with a friend. Take a screenshot, spread the word. It really allows me to bring on more incredible guests as we continue to level up in the podcasting space. And you mentioned something, and I've heard you talk about this as well um, in past events with Invest Ottawa around self-monitoring and being conscious about what it is that your body is telling you at any given moment. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that. And also, is it linked to you being an athlete as well? Like, how did you develop? I, I see it as a skill, to be quite honest. How did you develop that within yourself? And what are some things that you've you've been learning over the past couple of years about this consciousness about what your body, what's coming up for you, what it is that you need? You know, I, I think there are some basic needs that you eventually uh, clue into as an adult. <laughs> uh, things like, you know, hydration, you need water, right? Uh, you need food, you need a roof over your your head, you need security, um, you need sleep, you need connection with others, you need to, uh, you have a need to feel like you're contributing. There are some basic needs. And, and anytime any of those needs aren't being met, it's having that awareness of what it is that's missing. And, and it may sound simplistic, but there are many times when my grumpy mood is likely because I'm quite dehydrated or I'm quite hungry. And so, I, you know, that's putting it in the, its simplest uh, format. But I, I think there are basic things that you eventually learn about yourself. Now, in terms of, of the athletics and the stress of work and being in a leadership role, and at the same time as the pandemic was, you know, waltzing into our lives, busting the doors down saying, here I am, our organization was undertaking a very ambitious and exciting exercise of creating its first integrated strategic plan. So balancing all those things, I think what I've learned about myself physically in the last 12 months is much, much more than what I learned in the five previous years. 
And, and I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. In, in the early days of the pandemic, I was really struggling with sleep. And, you know, we, we didn't have all the research that we have now 12 months later about the pandemic and sleep and the impact it, it was having on people. We've known for a long time that sleep is very important. It's very important to athletes. You read about it in all the literature. But, you know, it was when I started experiencing what what's sleep deprivation was like and how it was making me feel during the day that I wasn't sleeping because I'd always prided myself. Oh, I don't need that much sleep. I can get away with five and a half hours, five hours, especially when I was doing my studies and working full time. Oh, yeah, I only need five hours. I only need six hours. That's maybe okay in the short term mm-hmm. um, when things are going really well. But in the longer term, when you've got, you know, pandemic, you've got stresses from work, you've got environmental things, you've got family, you've got concerns with, you know, family members that aren't that close, um, you know, five, five hours sleep is probably not enough. You can get away with it for a short time, but not a long time. So I'm just using that as an illustration and an example. The other, um, the other thing that I learned in the past 12 months was really the power of being aware of my own anxiety and how that would manifest itself, how that came across to others and made them feel anxious. You know, it's, it's really interesting when it comes to things like anxiety, because it will have a ripple effect. It will heighten people's uh, stimulation. And so I became aware that my own anxiety might have a ripple effect on, you know, colleagues I was working with and, and so forth. And, and I think in workplaces, um, you do try to self-manage as much as possible because of that impact on people that you're working with or your colleagues, you just want to make sure that um, you understand where that's coming from so you can deal with it. And in sports, you know, one thing that I've learned in triathlon for sure, you read about it all the time, but what you learn is that if you wait to eat till you're hungry, you've waited too long. And what you can expect you know, to come up is going to be a major bonk, which means low sugar, low energy, and you're not going to be able to continue. So being proactive about drinking, feeding, and so forth in sport is the same thing in real life, being proactive, because sometimes by the time you're feeling it and know what it is, it requires a different kind of intervention. That's really interesting. And the examples that you trot upon as well to, I think metaphors are so powerful in simplifying what it is that you're trying to say and, and you're able to apply it in so many different areas of your life. That's what I really love as part of, you know, the power of why and this discussion around purpose and what the why is behind your work. A lot of it is related to the self insight and listening to what it is that, you know, you're driven by and what problems that you're looking to help contribute to and solve, you know, it seems like our plates feel a lot heavier right now. And in a lot of cases, they likely are. How do you relax? And do you schedule moments to, to just think? And I'm wondering um, what your practice is around slowing down and, and rest. And yeah, if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. 
You know, the um, I'm going to go back to sports just for a moment, and then I'll talk specifically about leadership. But one of the other lessons in sport that really benefited me when once I understood it was that growth, speed, and improvement happens through recovery. So you practice hard, you practice fast, but that's not the only thing that makes you faster or stronger. It's the recovery that makes that happen. So it's the stress and the recovery. And so let's let's just think about that in the context of leadership, because there is a lot of stress and it can be 110% stress. It can be very, very stressful. I think most leaders that you would speak to would say the one area that they value is when they do have time to think and that they have time to reflect and they have time to plan ahead. And those moments, you have to make time for them. It's, it's like everything else that you book in your, in your calendar. And I know many executives who will book in time. And I do that. I'll book, I'll book a lunch break for myself. It doesn't happen as often these days as it used to, but the last couple of months, a little more often that I'll go outside when I'm at the office at the hospital, I'll go outside and I'll go for a run uh, at the experimental farm. And then I'll come back, back in my job. That may not sound like relaxation to you, but you know, it, I think it's different for everyone. Maybe that's another message that, you know, everybody finds that relaxation in different ways, building those times in and knowing that you have that to look forward to so that you can do some of that thinking and parceling out in your mind of complex issues that you need to sort out. Um, Having close colleagues that you can chit chat with and just bounce ideas off of, I I think that's very useful as well. And, um, you know, taking advantage of that, you know, being a leader doesn't mean that you're alone all the time. I mean, being a leader is really about team and having a team and really, you know, having an, an ability to bring the best out of that team. And I have a wonderful team. I really, really do. Um, but there are times when being a leader is a solo sport. And there are some things that, you know, you have to do on your own. And, and I think you know, I really value that little bit of time that you get to do some thinking on your own and reflecting. Um, I know some people who meditate. I've recently um, learned about the power and impact and positive impact of breathing. Uh, you know, something that, you know, if you do yoga, you learn a lot about that. And uh, I'm learning. I mean, you know, just because you're you know, you've been doing something for a long time doesn't mean that you can't still learn. So I'm I'm learning about that as well. So some of those simplistic things, they, they may seem simplistic, but they're off the shelf that everybody does. They're good for everybody. And not just, you know, not just people who are climbing into leadership roles, but people who are already there and established. I love that you brought up breathing techniques and yoga, such a powerful practice. And I think I first discovered yoga, I had no idea what yoga was. And then in, in first year, there's a yoga studio in Ottawa, and they came and held a couple sessions. 
um, at the university. And so I don't know why, what called me to sign up, but I signed up and I've been doing it for the past seven years or so. And it's been incredible. I'm wondering for folks who are interested in growing and developing in the ways that you've described in their careers and their, in their personal lives, how have you approached career advancement or even development in your, in your sport as a triathlete? Cause I'm, I'm starting to really appreciate the, the power of like small steps, move the needle and building in a really sustainable way. And so can you talk a little bit about as you were starting up in your career and even now, what are some of the things that you've learned about growth development and just becoming like more of your, of yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, that could be a very long conversation, but uh, let me start out by saying that there's no career that's going one direction. Most careers, including mine, have had very lateral stages and even dips and then climbs and then lateral stages and dips and climbs. And so I'm, I'm trying to say that I had an impression when I was a young person in my 30s that every job that I had had to be a step up. And what I came to learn after not always being successful in all the applications that I made for employment was that maybe I was approaching it the wrong way. When I was about 40 years old and, you know, when I told you that I went up to the Arctic, I decided that I would change my tact and that I would be looking for experience instead. What was another way for me to gain experience that wasn't as, you know, as much of climbing a ladder? Like, how could I, how could I do this in a different way? So I would say if you're looking for career advancement and you've got the fundamentals of some education, you've got skill, you've got some competency, it really is about what is your life's experience, what is your work experience, and that variety and diversity that you can bring to to the table based on something different that you do that nobody else has done, teaches you so much in the moment. You learn a lot about yourself, and you also learn something different and new that you can bring into a workplace that really changes your perspective and that's invaluable and you don't get that in a book and you don't get that in traditional workplaces, but you get it through other experiences and those experiences can be volunteering. They can be, you know, contributing in your community. They can be helping a friend. Um, They can be traveling to a location that, you know, most people will never go to and, you know, working or volunteering for a period of time. So I would say, you know, nothing's ever just going in one direction up. It's all the richness of those experiences that really help your career. Mentorship is important. Uh, Probably the the smartest thing I ever did uh, for myself was that I hired a coach to help me with my career. Um, And don't be fooled, coaches don't help only with careers, coaches also help with life. And, you know, because they're, they're working with you as a person. And, and so for, for people who might be listening, who are wondering, you know, what are some of the steps, the 
the biggest gift you can give to yourself would be to find a mentor who is, is willing to, you know, spend time with you and listen and ask you some really great questions, because that's what I learned about coaching. You know, there wasn't a coach who was going to tell me what to do. The coach was going to ask me a lot of questions that I had to answer myself. And that became really valuable because then I learned to ask myself. And so I think in real life, asking yourself those questions, is like what you asked me earlier about that self-reflection and you know, that wondering of in the workplace, could I have done something different and, and so forth. So that's a long answer to say, it's never going to be a straight line. It's always going to be jaggedy and be okay with that, you know, that it's going to be jaggedy, but find someone that you trust and have them ask you some questions. I love that. I have to thank you for that answer because I think oftentimes, and it's pretty unfortunate, actually, the narrative out there is like, you have to do this and then you do this as if there's like a step-by-step playbook for what it means to be successful. And I say that in air quotes for folks listening because success is not one thing. And I think part of that self-insight is to define it for yourself, right? And I think for, for a lot of people, there is that pressure to have it all figured out and know it needs to be perfect and it needs to be the way that I had planned. But honestly, I think the even in you recounting your experiences, they sound so rich and quality fueled, I would say, in that you can't plan the best things, you know, um, and just trusting it and going with what comes is is really powerful. Um, you talked a little bit before we hit record around, you know, women in leadership and you had some thoughts around what the future could look like and the work that we need to do today as well. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about your thoughts on women in leadership and and what you see for the next five, 10 years. Okay, thanks for that question. It's something I'm quite passionate about, uh, the development of the next generation of female leaders, um, even the current generation of leaders and how we support each other. The most important thing as a female leader, whether you're an emerging leader, whether you're mid-career, whether you're advanced career, you know, maybe you're in you know, the end of your career, is uh, to have a vision for yourself. And that vision will guide you throughout your career. And it's like a strategy because if as long as you're headed in the direction of that vision, you're always on track. And so, you know, going back to what I mentioned earlier about it's not a straight trajectory to, you know, get to the top. It's going to be a lot of ups and downs and you have to accept that. It's the same thing for female leadership. And and I think it's, we've made some headway in encouraging the development of female leadership. We still have a long way to go. And I, I think we can, we can do this by scheduling and organizing campaigns specifically for young girls to experiment and be interested in non-traditional careers, to have those experiences, to start developing that vision or that image of themselves at an earlier stage than, you know, perhaps when, when, when I did by the time I was, you know, 35, 40 years old, you know, that's a long, that's a long time in life to be just developing that vision. But if you start earlier in developing that vision, imagine the satisfaction 
that you feel as a 20-year-old knowing that you're headed in the right direction. That type of mentoring, that type of encouragement for female leadership really is important and continues to be important. Um, We've made a lot of headway in breaking some of the glass ceilings that exist, but we still have a ways to go. And, And I think there are still careers in all kinds of other industries that are calling for female leadership and are waiting for, you know, more women to embrace and and get into those sectors. And and I think we're seeing more and more young women going into those areas of work. And, uh, you know, I, I think we'll see some changes coming up in the future. But I do think we have to take certain things into consideration. And one of those things is that women will make life choices for themselves that have an impact on career. They may decide they want to have a family. And I think that's a reality and that's okay. And I think we have to accommodate for that and we have to be flexible as employers so that women don't feel like they're going to lose two or three years of gains because they make a decision that's really important to them on a personal level and on a spiritual level and intellectually. I mean, those decisions can should be able to be made without punishment or consequence to career. And of course, there are choices. You know, you might might have to give and take along the way. But but I think as a society, we have to start making concessions for accommodations and to encourage more of that development and and to be okay with some of those choices that women may make along along their career. Mm-hmm. So leadership is really important. And, uh, you know, I think that's important for young people. And I think for, for people like myself, you know, who are in the latter stages of their career, that when they're asked by someone to be a mentor, to, to really consider it and, and to say yes. I'm a certified coach as well for, for executive coaching. I don't have time to do executive coaching with my full career right now but I always have time for mentorship and I always have time to talk to other female leaders that are wondering if they're on the right path. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Joanne. For the last question on the power of why, I'm curious, what are some things or maybe even just one or two things happening in your space um, that you are really keeping an eye on that you would really like to share with um, the power of why community? I think what I'd like to share is the importance of voice as you know, the leader for the Royal right now and our new strategy, which is called co-creating access, hope and new possibilities. That co-creation will happen with clients and family members who have lived experience and lived expertise. And it's the value of that lived expertise that really adds to what we will provide in the future in terms of care for people with mental health and substance use disorders. So this is a transformation that we're undertaking at the Royal, and it really will count on those voices and the input along the way of clients and family members. And we all have a voice, and we all can say um, what works for us, and uh, we can customize to our own needs and desires as well. So it's important. The why for the Royal is because of clients and family members and the importance of their voices. But my personal why as well is because 
I know what works for me and that's what I'm going to go after. And I would encourage people in your audience to do the same thing. Thank you, Joanne. I also wanted to share that the Royal is hosting another virtual take of Is It Just Me, which is an event, and it will be held during Mental Health Week, which is May the 3rd to the 9th. They have an incredible lineup of experts in very different areas, so a neuroscientist, a psychologist, and young adults who are also living with mental illness who are going to come in and share. So I really encourage folks to check it out. I will have links to where you can connect with Joanne in the show notes. So thank you, Joanne, for taking the time. Um, This was such a refreshing and beautiful episode, and I appreciate you sharing your experiences with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Power of Why podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review on iTunes. It really helps us get this podcast out to more people. This episode is also powered by Invest Ottawa. Invest Ottawa supports business owners and entrepreneurs through services and programs and recently opened applications for SheBoot, a six-week boot camp to ensure that your business is investment ready. If you're interested, you can visit investottawa.ca forward slash Shibu to learn more.